A quick warning before we start. This episode contains descriptions of injured animals and animal abuse that may be disturbing to some listeners. There are also a couple of swears. Previously on The Underdogs. Ooh, cold. Cold, cold, cold. (laughs) Floor reached out to me, I believe it was on Facebook Messenger, and said, you know, we're really looking to find a kennel that can take care of our dogs for a few months. They present themselves as reputable people who have a thriving business in New Zealand. It's a great feeling being out here with the dogs by ourselves, enjoying this environment. April 30th. Hey, Floor, hate to be pushy, but wondering when we can expect a payment. Do you remember what you were feeling when you found out that these dogs that you've been taking care of all summer were going to be there for another season? I was really angry. I was super, super angry. There's something I want to make clear. This series is not about animal abuse, but it is something that we have to talk about. In 1973, the Iditarod's inaugural year, 15 dogs didn't survive the race. The second year, it was 16. A lot of sled dog deaths are caused by aspiration pneumonia. It's where they accidentally breathe in their own phlegm or vomit while running. Or their hearts will suddenly stop and they'll just collapse. But there are freak accidents too. Huskies have been hit by drunk snowmobilers, trampled by moose. One was strangled after getting its harness caught in a passing tree. After those first two races, in 1975, the Iditarod organizers made changes to protect the dog's safety. There were checkups throughout the race, dogs have to wear booties to protect their feet from the ice, and veterinary care is a lot better than it was back then. So these days, A couple of years might go by without any dogs dying at all. But it still happens. And every so often, there's a bad run where four or five huskies won't make it. Injuries, though, they're a lot more common. Every team starts with at least 12 dogs. But only about half of all the huskies that run the Iditarod will actually cross the finish line. Many of them get pulled out by mushers or veterinarians because they're sick, exhausted, or hurt. So it's no surprise that animal rights groups have been railing against the Iditarod since the very beginning. PETA has staged protests at the opening ceremonies for a few years now. 150 dogs have died since the Iditarod's inception, but those are only the reported numbers. They don't include dogs who died immediately after the race. The Iditarod came about during a time when a lot of Americans were obsessed with the rugged mythos of Alaska. Mushing wasn't just a sport, it was a source of regional pride and history. But today, with Americans spending more money than ever to treat their pets like a part of the family, those protests have really struck a chord. Coverage of the Adidorat is quieter. Big companies like Coca-Cola, Wells Fargo, and ExxonMobil have all pulled out as sponsors. Millennium Hotels ended its national sponsorship. PETA vows to keep pushing back as Alaska Airlines exits the stage. In Seattle, Glenn Farley, King 5 News. This year, it was the smallest field in Iditarod history. Only 33 mushers ran the race. I'm an Alaskan, and I do not support the Iditarod. 
Okay, I'm sorry to just keep piling this on, but it's not just the Iditarod. The entire sport is under fire. There have been dog doping rumors. A legendary musher was disqualified after testing positive for methamphetamine. In 2010, a man in Whistler, British Columbia, pled guilty to slaughtering over 50 healthy sled dogs and then dumping them into a mass grave. Tonight, there is shock and outrage on the streets of Whistler and across the country. Hudson, more than 800 people have joined a Facebook page boycotting Outdoor Adventures Whistler. Also tonight, Tourism Whistler has suspended reservations for the dog sledding company. And the uh, SPCA is now the lead investigation in this case. In response, British Columbia strengthened its animal cruelty laws, and dog sledding companies there have to submit to annual inspections now. It's not right. We know that's not right in our society. How hard is it to pick up a phone and call SPCA to... um tell them to come get these dogs. It's not hard. Like, the dogs didn't do anything. They don't deserve it. So if this isn't a series about abuse, what am I getting at? My point is, is that all this controversy has made mushers a lot more guarded. Wary. They know that every time a reporter covers this sport, there's a chance that they're going to devote a few paragraphs to the Whistler dog sledding massacre or the latest PETA protest, just like I did. And that's why I was so surprised when I got the tip that led me to this story. Did I trust him? I don't know. Did I? But there was no reason not to. I mean, what kind of behind-the-scenes drama does it take for a bunch of tight-knit dog sledders to call me, an environmental podcaster from the Lower 48? Where is the, you know, the promise you made to me? The community doesn't need more bad press, right? In this case, they're willing to risk it. I had never dealt with somebody who was serially lying to me. I'm Nate Hedgie, and you're listening to Outside In Presents, The Underdogs. It's about the guarded, elite world of competitive sled dog racing, and two mushers who burned bridges, destroyed friendships, and owe people tens of thousands of dollars. And I'm not going to give her the luxury of calling it denial. I think they knew full well what they were fucking doing. This is part two. It has to be earned. Oh, she probably, yeah, that's probably me getting missed it. But, nah, I probably missed it. Watch me. Hey, did you watch, watch me miss a turn? Yep. All right. You, you went, uh, you turned and you were supposed to come straight. Come straight, yeah, yep, I got myself confused. Jamie Nelson doesn't live in Alaska. She's from far northern Minnesota. Fargo country. And she's a member of the old guard of competitive mushing. Well, I ran the Bear Grease 84. Well, didn't complete, but I did it in 85, 86, 87, 88. Minnesota is home to the longest dog sled race in the lower 48. It's a 400-mile slog along the north shore of Lake Superior that mushers refer to as the Bear Grease. And I won it in 88. They lengthened it to 500 miles because it, they said it'd slow me down. Jamie has won Bear Grease four times, but she raced her first Iditarod in 1989. 70 mile an hour winds the first day, and we saw a, a roof of a shed flying. And <laughs> I get out onto the trail, and it was getting toward evening, and uh, a guy comes by and runs over my leader, passing, you know. One of your dogs? Yeah. 
What was he? Was he using a truck or what was he? He was on a sled. On a sled. Wow. Well, you know, the edge yeah. of that runner hitting a dog's leg. <clears throat> now that's just the start. Oh. <laughs> it gets worse. <laughs> Were you able to finish that first idea around? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. What, what place did you get? Middle of the pack. Middle of the pack. Jamie's been through it all. She's fallen through ice, nearly died from carbon monoxide poisoning because a propane heater broke in her tent, and she's got a lot of old injuries. Bad back, bad knees. That ankle does not work real well. Yeah, uh, yeah. It hasn't been pleasant. Yeah, I bet. For a while. Are you getting surgery on that one? Yeah. When's that? April 5th. Okay. Nowadays, she doesn't race anymore. Most of her huskies have been sold or adopted. There's a few in the dog yard near a cabin and a couple more that live inside with her. Actually, if you hear any clicking sounds in my interview tape, that's the static electricity from her dog's coats interfering with my recorder. No, come here. There was a big one named Skid, and the other one is named One. Only dog in her litter. That's why she's named One. <laughs> One was small and black, and she had this really cool trick that Jamie taught her. One wood. Now she's running towards the uh, woodshed. woodshed. Uh-huh. Just a minute. <laughs> and then she puts it into the wood box. Oh, you missed. That a That's girl. amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. Good job, doggos. Great. Jamie didn't just race Alaskan Huskies. She also bred and trained them. You see, competitive sled dog teams are a lot like football teams. Players get old, they get beat up, they retire. So you're constantly having to draft new ones. Same goes with sled dogs. And Jamie has sold her huskies for thousands of dollars each. There's an awful lot of dogs up there in Alaska that come from what I've bred over the years. Yeah, It's a somewhat lucrative side business. But Jamie also drove a school bus for 20 years. And she used to run mushing boot camps for wannabe dog sled racers. That's how she met Kurt and Fleur Pirano. I had a lot of people say that they were, you know, a future possible threat to, you know, being a competitive, real competitive team. That they were good. That they were good. Like other people I've spoken to for this story, Jamie has bad blood with the Piranos, the pair of successful New Zealand dog sledders who've burnt bridges across the North American mushing community. But unlike some of my other sources, Jamie said she'd only talk to me in person. She's not on social media, doesn't spend much time on the internet. If she was going to tell me her story, it would have to be face-to-face. Because trust is something mushers don't take lightly. And that's the thing that really, you know, is so hard to deal with, with what they have done since. What happened? What did they go through? What made them turn into, you know evil people. It was 15 years ago. Jamie says Kurt Pirano was built like a rugby player. Kurt definitely looked military. He had a square jaw, squinting gray eyes, and a gap between his two front teeth. He reportedly served in New Zealand's special forces and even did a tour in Afghanistan. You could tell by his attitude that he... He didn't give up on things. He'd been well-trained. He was a, a force to be reckoned with, and you could feel it. 
Kurt and his wife had shown up to one of Jamie's boot camps in October 2007. At the time, they were still new to the sport, or greenhorns. They only owned a couple of Malamutes. They just wanted to learn how to control these big fuzzies. Unlike Alaskan Huskies, Malamutes look more like what you'd expect a sled dog to look like. Longer coat, wolf-like. They're considered one of the 16 basal breeds that are more closely related to wolves. But one of Curtin Fleur's Malamutes in particular was aggressive towards other dogs. And sure enough, when they set out on a training run with Jamie... First thing the dog did was latch onto a Siberian Husky. Just bite onto it. Right on the top of the back. Right behind the shoulders. Just latched on. <clears throat> I happened to be standing there, and we carry a piece of hose because, you know, you just don't put your hand in a dog fight. It's just not safe. Because you can get bitten. You should bet you can get bitten. You can get bitten pretty bad. I've had my share. There is something you should know about Jamie. She's old school in a way that many other mushers aren't. That a lot of dog owners aren't. I had my hose, and I used it on him. <clears throat> and they both stood there. They didn't know what was going on. I said, this is not acceptable behavior. And I had my arm on Fleur because she was worried I might hurt her dog. Well, it was a piece of hose with nothing in it, or it wasn't, you know, it just flopped. And I kept on the dog until we could get him free and went another 50 feet, and he found another one, and he got it. He came off a lot quicker because I really lit into him hard that time. And they thanked me for getting after him. The next time his Malamute attacked another dog, she says Kurt struck it with that floppy hose, too. It told her two things. That there was, you know, they weren't afraid to get after the dogs. And they didn't hold it against me that I had gotten after them. Every time that dog saw me the rest of those three days, he would not listen to them. He wanted to come to me. Really? Because I had set rules. And that's the one thing Malamutes like is the rules. And you had shown them the rules. Yeah, because I think we should just address this um, just because I know there's going to be listeners who hear that story and they immediately think, oh my God, Jamie, you were being abusive to that dog. You were hitting it with a hose. Like, what's your rationale behind behind that? Well, I don't want to get hurt myself. I am not going to stick my hand in the middle of a dog fight that I do not know the dogs. The dog was doing wrong and they don't feel because of their hair coat. So the only place they feel is the nose. And the nose is what's in trouble. So what why wouldn't I be fair to the whole thing? Because I feel that discipline is not cruel if it's done fairly. <clears throat> and this was a situation that they were going to have to leave or get control of that dog. And it worked. And it worked. The dog loved me and until he died. Years later, Fleur the woman from New Zealand, she would express discomfort with how Jamie treated dogs. But at the time, she and her husband, Kurt, were both greenhorns. They were eager to learn. And they soon began working for Jamie as her dog handlers. They lived in a small cabin on her property, took turns running the huskies and doing chores. Many nights they'd come over for dinner. Do you remember, did they have any hobbies or things they'd like to talk about outside of mushing when they were here? 
I'm not sure I can answer that. <clears throat> because we were so focused that I didn't have time for other things. And I didn't notice a lot of things because I was focused on my own stuff. And they were like that, though, too. Sounds like. Yes, in a way. Yeah. They were friends. Or at least they were all on the same team. In the same circle of mushers, living a way of life that very few others understand. When the Piranos left Minnesota to start their own dog sledding tourism company in New Zealand, Jamie said she gave them a $15,000 business loan. When Jamie needed back surgery and couldn't take care of her kennel, Kurt came out and stayed with her to manage the dogs. And when Kurt and Fleur wanted to buy new Huskies for the U.S. racing team, Jamie sold them, 2000 bucks a pop. Because Jamie and the Piranos were in the same circle of trust, these tended to be informal deals based on verbal agreements and handshakes. A musher's code. Why, why is that? Why was it always handshakes? Why did you never bother to write things down back then? Well, I never have. Um, partly because I guess I take people for who they are. Honesty is something that I've always felt, and integrity and uh, professionalism and everything. Um, and that's been exemplified within the sled dog community that you've worked with? Most often. Everything was on the up and up. Everything was on the up and up. In 2018, Kurt reached out again. He wanted to pick up nine new fully trained dogs for his U.S. racing team. Jamie said, yeah, of course. The cost would be $18,000. Kurt told Jamie that Fleur would get in touch about the money. There was a conversation, and he said, Fleur will take care of it. And that was my stupidity in that... I let the dogs leave before I saw some money. Have you done that before? No. <clears throat> but you trusted him. Did I trust him? I don't know. Did I? But there was no reason not to. Jamie says she was never paid for any of those nine dogs. But we know exactly what happened to them next. Cole, Sam, Smudge, and Summit, they and the others all wound up on Kurt and Fleur's U.S. dog sledding team. They would go on to race in the 2019 Yukon Quest. And after that, they would get dropped off at Duclaw Kennel in Fairbanks, Alaska. Dropped off with another Iditarod veteran. Jody Bailey, the woman from the last episode. You want to give people a chance to do the right thing. You want to give people a chance to be good. And I really spent far too long wanting Floor to be good. In 2019, when New Zealanders Kurt and Fleur Pirano left their U.S. team of 24 sled dogs with Jody Bailey of Duclaw Kennel, the arrangement was only supposed to last about six months. But then they asked for an extension. And that extension took them right into the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. And during COVID, you know, I was a little bit conflicted because in theory it was true. It would be hard to move the dogs. It wasn't hard to move money. So I was still pissed off. But I did get that the dogs couldn't fly during COVID. By October of 2021, that original six-month agreement 
had dragged on for nearly three years. The dogs, for the most part, were fine. One of them had died of old age, but for the rest, they were living outside in cold weather, running every day. Jody and Dan, on the other hand, were not fined. The Piranos had now amassed more than $32,000 in late boarding fees. It was a pattern Jody was used to by now. She would press them on the money, and Fleur would say something terrible had happened. Kurt's dad was sick. Her mother was sick. Her bank account had been hacked. Like, I'd get another email from Fleur with some lame-ass excuse. Oh, I already paid it. No, you didn't. And, um, you know, I'm not entirely proud of all the messages that I sent to her because I would absolutely lose it. I should mention at this point that tracking all of this was not easy. Because these arrangements were originally built on trust between fellow mushers, the documentation is not ideal. At times I felt like an IRS agent hounding a professional dog sitter. But I've now read through hundreds of these Facebook messages, including the ones from Kurt and Fleur. I've also looked at invoices and emails, and I've spoken to more than a dozen people about what happened here. And when you piece it all together, it all lines up with Jody's story. I was having a lot of anger issues. I was so mad at them and mad that people could do this and this whole life is unfair and this is ridiculous. And Did it just bleed? Did the, that anger start to just bleed into other aspects of your life? Um, I would like to think no because I was aware of it and tried really hard, but I think I was angry enough that it did, you know? There were days that it would just affect my whole mood. I'd get a text from her with another lie, and the rest of my day, I would literally have to do like a, a put effort into making a mental reset so I could be happy again. And there'd be like days at a time, I wouldn't even walk into the New Zealand dog yard. Wouldn't even look at it. And it wasn't their fault. Like anybody would ask me, like I had hatred for the piranhas. I was hoping they're like, trucks would explode or, you know, like I was wishing really bad things on them, which is not a good place to be. Jody had had enough. She and her husband, Dan, had drained savings accounts. She had started going to therapy. So Jody had sent a letter to the Pranos, giving them three options. You can pay me in full and have the dogs gone by this date. We will keep the dogs as long as you prepay the remaining months, because at this point in time, they were still asking us for more time. Um, and if you do neither of these things, we will be rehoming your team. No rehomed dogs will be returned to you. She set a deadline for October 15th, 2022. When the day came, Jody got a message from Fleur. She said she was just diagnosed with a brain tumor, was at the hospital. It was a tragic story, and Jody didn't believe it. She felt like she was being gaslit. She was so deep in her own whatever she was pulling, you know, and I'm not going to give her the luxury of calling it denial. I think they knew full well what they were fucking doing. And I guess when you're that kind of person, you get in so deep, all you can do is dig yourself deeper. At this point, Jody had spoken with a lawyer and she felt confident that she wouldn't get sued. Brain tumor or not, the Baranos had missed their deadline again. So Jody called their bluff. 
and I actually started rehoming dogs. One of the dogs, Finn, went to a mushing friend in Alaska. Grizz and Smudge were adopted by a couple of former handlers in Fairbanks. But soon, one way or another, Fleur found out about one of the rehomed dogs. She reached out to Jody and to the dog's new owner and threatened them both with legal action, said they were still her dogs. And she told Jody that she had filed a police report, though I haven't found any evidence that that actually happened, and I'm not sure what she would have said if she did file one. But most importantly, Fleur also rushed to finally pay her debts and transferred a single payment of more than $42,000 into Jody's bank account. This time, there were no delays or problems. It went through just fine. They obviously had money. It wasn't that they didn't have money to pay us, they just didn't. Around this time, Jody found out, through a mutual mushing friend, that Fleur's husband, Kurt, he was actually already in Alaska. He was staying at a hotel. So she picked up the phone. I called the hotel and asked very nicely if they'd put me in contact with my friend Kurt Pirano. I hear he's staying with you from New Zealand. And um, that is how I talked to him in person. It was the first time she had spoken to either Kurt or Fleur in two and a half years. The cell phone number she had for them had stopped working for her a while back, and everything had been through Facebook Messenger. And he was pretty shocked when I got him on the phone. And then I was waiting for him to say anything, like, you know, I'm really sorry, or let's see what we can work out, but he played dumb. He pretended he didn't know anything about it. And I said, well, listen, would you like me to send you this certified letter that your wife's had for now four months that says that I'm going to rehome your dogs and you're not getting them back? And he asked me if he could get my phone number and call me back because he wanted to talk to Floor. And waited, and about a half an hour later, he called back. And he, that's when he said, okay, I talked to Floor. You are right. We're just come pick up the dogs that you have left. He claimed to be really sorry. He claimed it was all Fleur's fault. I'm really, really sorry about this. Are you sure you got the payment? Yes, we got the payment. All right, well, then we're just going to come get the dogs that we can get. And the person who was scheduled to get them came and picked them up the next day. When the 15 remaining dogs finally left Alaska, it was by truck. They were headed for Los Angeles, to the office of a company called Jet Pets that specialized in transporting animals internationally. The plan was to then ship them back to Curtin Fleur's kennel in New Zealand. I asked Jody how it felt to say goodbye. She thought about it, grabbed another chunk of wood to put in the fire. It was, like, bittersweet. I hated giving the dogs back to those awful people. But at the same time, I felt, like, relieved that our nightmare was over. This is going to sound totally naive, but I had never dealt with people like this. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I know assholes and jerks and also, but I had never dealt with somebody who was serially lying to me, who, like, for reasons that I will never understand, did these horrible, horrible things. But at least at this point in time, they had gotten their dogs, and Kurt swore to God that they loved them and would take good care of them and they'd all be home. 
they'd all be, quote unquote, home. Even though many of the dogs had never stepped foot in New Zealand, she hoped it would be a happy transition for them. But what Jody didn't know at the time was that most of the dogs weren't flying to New Zealand. They're just going to another type of limbo. That's coming up after the break. Outside In is a listener-supported, public radio-produced podcast. Making a series like this, one that involves a lot of travel and investigative reporting, it's a big risk for us. Times are tight in the podcast world. Sponsorships are harder to come by. So if you're really enjoying The Underdogs, and you think public media should continue to have a role in on-demand audio, please support the work we do. You can make a donation at outsideinradio.org. And thanks. So far, there are two very obvious voices missing from this series, Kurt and Fleur Pirano. Everything I know about them is pretty one-dimensional. Just a handful of online messages, invoices, YouTube clips, but it's not for a lack of trying. After I got home from Alaska, I tried emailing them, no answer. I also tried calling a number listed on their website for the New Zealand kennel, Underdog New Zealand. No luck. Our 2022 winter season is now closed. If you would like us to contact you, please send us an email or a text and we will get back to you as soon as we can. Thank you. I even sent a letter by certified mail, which, by the way, cost $176.24. So they know I'm trying to get in touch. Why did they leave their dogs in Alaska so long? If they were having money troubles, why didn't they just come clean and tell Jody and Dan? Did Fleur really get diagnosed with a brain tumor the same week Jody told her that she had to pick up the dogs? Without being able to ask them directly, I'm left looking for clues in the only thing I do know about Kurt and Fleur. They're mushers. Alrighty, here we go, thanks. Do, I... do you know the direction? No. So on right is to begin. Okay. When you go straight, it's straight ahead. It was my last day of reporting at Jody's place and I was about to go mushing. I was standing on a metal sled with a team of seven dogs ahead of me. And they weren't the hardcore racing huskies. Jody calls them the paper clips. They're the dogs they use for tourists, but already they were jumping and banging at their harnesses. Jody was on a snowmobile ahead of me. She turned around, gave me a thumbs up. I'm good. I let go of the brake and I was off. Oh, shit. The sled tugged hard and I nearly fell over. All right, all right, here we go, here we go. We're in, we're in, I got it. Okay, okay, we're good, we're good. Woo! The dogs do most of the work, sure. But I had to stay low on the sled, knees bent, almost like skiing. And honestly, it was a workout. When you go uphill, you take one foot off the sled and kick to help the dogs, kind of like you're riding a scooter. And it takes a lot of core strength to keep your balance. Sleds can tip going around turns and just dump you into the snow. Okay. I'm just gonna fix the tangle for you. Yeah. How's it feel? Feels good. It was a little bit of a wild start, but it was good. <laughs> can you imagine doing it as a race dog? 
Oh my God, yeah. I was very thankful that we're doing it with the paper clips right now. I was like, all right, paper clips, I can, uh, I can handle that. After four miles, I was wiped. I mean, I can't imagine Kurt Pirano doing this for more than 100 miles a day on the Iditarod Trail. That takes endurance, a tolerance for pain, and for hunger. Mushers will often lose weight, about a pound every couple of days, and they can battle sprained ankles, frozen hands. They can get frostbite so bad, the skin peels off their fingers when they remove their gloves. So what drives a person to do such a thing? That's all we knew, and there was no snow machines, no other modes of transportation. For people like Mike Williams Sr., it's part of his history. So we relied on um, the dogs to um, help uh, with our lives. You know, get some uh, wood, uh, pack water, hunt. Mike is Yupiak and he grew up in a small village in western Alaska. Up until the 1960s, he says, there were no trucks or snowmobiles there, just dog sleds. It's not just, um, you know, just to have dogs. It's the dogs are part of our family, and they are so strong mentally, physically, uh, spiritually. They're just strong. For Mike and a lot of other dog sledders, the people who protest the Iditarod just don't know what they're talking about. The Alaskan natives have had dogs for thousands of years. They take better care of them than most people take care of the pets, he says. Mike's family has been racing in the Iditarod since 1983. And for them, dog sledding is a way of preserving their heritage. But what my dad said was, um, we are not going to lose our dogs because of the snow machine. It's like uh, languages and our land we lost. Um, if we lose a dog, then we lose it. This year, the top three finishers in the Iditarod were all Alaska natives. But the truth is, most people mushing in the Iditarod these days can't lay claim to that same heritage. And what connects them to the sport is a little harder to define. Jody's husband, Dan Caduce, he grew up in Wisconsin. He used to run triathlons there. And Jody, she's from Martha's Vineyard. She came to Alaska in the 1990s looking for adventure. In the beginning, I didn't even race. You know, I just ran the dogs. I didn't think I wanted to do it. It didn't matter. I just was having fun. But if you get into dog mushing and then you start doing distance mushing and you start doing 100-mile races and 200-mile races, everybody starts asking you, when are you going to do the Iditarod? Jody has now done it six times. And just like a grueling ultramarathon or a seven-week backpacking trip, it can be hard to put into words just how exhausting and exhilarating it can be. Okay, here's the example I use. When you're a virgin, sex is very interesting to you. You think about it a lot. You prepare for it. You might even say practice. But the bottom line is you don't really know what it is until the pants come off. Running a thousand miles is like that. You can watch all the movies, you can read the books, you can, but it is an experience that is really so intense that it kind of has to be earned. I don't know how I would explain it. I can give you the basics. Yeah, you're exhausted. You're super tired. You're sleeping for maybe four to six hours 
every 24 hours. And most people will at some point in time hallucinate they're so tired. Um, I tend to have auditory hallucinations. Yeah, did you? can you give me an example of an auditory hallucination you had? Um, I was running down the Yukon River in the middle of absolutely nowhere, in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden I very clearly heard an entire marching band playing Sousa. You know, da 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 You know, and I have this little internal dialogue going on in my head now where you're like, okay, Jody, you know that there is not a marching band in the middle of nowhere on the Yukon. And yeah, I turned around and looked. There was no band, you know, and then I, and as soon as I turned around and looked, I stopped hearing it. But it's not all bad. Like sometimes you'll be, like you'll be running along under a full moon and the team is just smooth and looking beautiful. And before you know it, you're crying because you just love those dogs so much. You know, and then other times you come through something incredibly hard and you've bounced off trees and everything's gone wrong and you're crying because you're pretty sure you're the stupidest person you know. It's an experience that has to be earned. I don't know that any of these stories can help me better understand Kurt and Fleur and why they left their dogs in Alaska for so long. What I can tell you is that this is exactly what the Piranos have taken advantage of. Because there aren't that many people that know firsthand what Jody is talking about. Sharing an experience as intense as a thousand miles on the Iditarod Trail. It doesn't just earn you experience. It earns you respect. It fast-tracks the process of building trust. Because why would you screw over the only other people in the world that love what you love. Back in 2019, when Kurt and Fleur first dropped the underdogs off with Jody Bailey in Fairbanks, Jody Bailey got a phone call. I had gotten a call from a woman named Jamie Nelson, who's a very well-known dog trainer in Togo, Minnesota. Remember Jamie? She's that old school musher from the beginning of the episode. And I had gotten a phone call from her saying, okay, I hear you've got the Pirano dogs. And I said, yes. She said, they never paid me for them. I'm coming to get them. And I looked at her and said, Jamie, can you prove it? I don't have any proof. I have no proof that they're mine. For Jody, this was before Kurt and Fleur had started missing payments, before everything went south. So she told Jamie, listen, I agreed to take care of these dogs, and I can't just let you take them without proof that they're yours. And I think Jamie said something like, you know, I actually respect you for that. Like, she understood what I was saying. And she said, but when you find out what you're dealing with, call me. I knew I wanted to talk to Jamie Nelson. Because if her story was true, it helped establish a pattern of behavior that the Piranos had started screwing over other mushers long before they dropped the dogs off at Duclaw Kennel. But remember, she would only talk to me in person. So I flew out to Minnesota to hear her story. And she told me what she told Jody. She had no evidence. I don't have any proof. No. Except that I can name them. <laughs> no proof of ownership or anything? No, no, none. You have no proof that 
he didn't pay you because there's no contract or anything else like that. Nothing. Well, that's the thing. Jody knows that they came from me. So does the whole rest of the world up in Alaska. This places me in a tricky spot. Reporters need evidence. Jody had bank statements and invoices she sent to Fleur, plus a copy of all those Facebook messages. Jamie doesn't. I asked her if it was okay if I dug around on her phone. <clears throat> okay, so let's see. Oh, I'm just getting a little close to you, if that's okay. Um, okay, yep. so we're looking at Gmail right now. Yep. And go go back to this. Do you mind if I see you, that? You okay. play with it. Is that I, okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to... No, there's nothing on there okay. that I worry about. All right, so... Finally, we found it. A couple of emails that Jamie had sent to Fleur and Kurt back in 2019. They were strongly worded. I've loaned you money and sold you dogs and dog food on credit. I have struggled to get you to consistently make payments to me. You've gone months without a payment, and the last payment I received is August of 2018. There was also an invoice attached. Not only did it show the Pranos owing her $18,000 for the nine dogs. 2800 yeah. It's actually more than 30000 But also tens of thousands of dollars more in missed payments for the business loan and for dog food and boarding. All in all, the debt totaled more than $40,000. But we still needed some kind of acknowledgement from the Pranos that they actually knew about the debt. Jamie kept telling me that Fleur had responded to her email. And you said that she sent you an email, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, she sent me one um, that said, I never intended not to pay you. Okay. Come on, you go outside. But I never found it, and I left Minnesota feeling a little disappointed. A few weeks later, after I got back from my reporting trip, I was looking through all my notes. Then I found something. It wasn't an email between Fleur and Jamie. It was one of the Facebook messages between Fleur and Jody. It was about a year and a half into the saga at Duclaw Kennel. Jody was trying to get Kurt and Fleur to square up on their late boarding fees. And to underline the fact that it was a pattern, she had written that it was, quote, no secret that Jamie was upset about the dogs leaving her place without being paid for, end quote. Jody was throwing down the gauntlet, telling Fleur that she knew those nine dogs from Minnesota had essentially been stolen. Fleur didn't deny. Instead, she wrote back, quote, Jamie will be paid fully by the end of this year. Proof that Kurt and Fleur knew they had a debt with Jamie. Where is it? Where is the, you know, the promise you made to me? You know, I've never dealt with uh, contracts and things like that. Well, you know, Jody said she'd never done it either before, but now she says she does. <laughs> Jamie was never paid her money, but Jody was. The dogs were picked up, the nightmare was over, and she got the more than $40,000 she was owed. I can't believe we actually got paid. You know, like all of my friends were like, Jody, you did it. You, you sent her the letter and you stuck to your guns and you did it. You know, like people were happy for me. I was happy for me. A few months passed, and she and Dan were able to finally focus on racing again. He was gearing up for his next Iditarod. 
and I'm sitting at the desk checking my emails end of the day or whatever and I didn't know the name of the person who emailed me but I recognized at jetpets.com that was the name of the pet transport company that Fleur and Kurt were using to fly the underdogs home to New Zealand. And I didn't even read the email. I just saw, you know, when you look at your list and it's so-and-so at, and my heart sunk. Because I knew. I knew. The dogs had been abandoned in Los Angeles. They were all covered in feces and urine yeah. they were going insane coming up on the last episode of the underdogs the final leg of their journey comes to a close and we try one last time to speak with Kurt and Fleur about why they abandoned their US racing team and I see their home in the distance. Kennels, there's, there's dogs everywhere. See, there are cars here, so, so someone's clearly home. I'm just going to make my way up there shortly. Outside Ends, The Underdogs, was reported and produced by me, Nate Hedgie. It was edited and mixed by Taylor Quimby. Additional editing help from Jack Rodolico, Justine Paradise, Felix Boone, Jessica Hunt, and from our executive producer, Rebecca Lavoy. Special thanks to Bo Baker and Maggie Ross for housing me in Duluth. Also to Tony Turner and Peter McClellan. Music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions, Dylan Sitz, Joseph Begg, Hannah Lindgren, and Amaranth Cove. Graphics by Sarah Plort. Outside In Presents The Underdogs is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. There's nothing like kicking you can do. Going up a little bit. Becomes a little bit of a workout.